Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm one of the show's hosts, Kevin Gastola, and I'm very pleased this week to be joined by John Washington, who is a volunteer for No More Deaths, which is a humanitarian aid organization. Um, and, and he's joining the show to talk about a report series that has been uh, produced. Uh, the first one was released in the past week, uh, past couple weeks. It's called Disappeared, How the U.S. Border Enforcement Agencies Are, are Fueling a Missing Persons Crisis. And uh, another group that worked on it is uh, La Coalición de Derechos Humanos, which is a, uh, a human and, and civil rights organization concerned with the human and civil rights of all migrant persons. So thank you for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. And so uh, just, just to get started, uh, what specifically – this is looking at is a strategy that has been employed by the U.S. Border Patrol, uh, called uh, which you, which is called in the report prevention through deterrence, and and so talk about this strategy and how long it has been used against people crossing the border. Sure. So the, the this is the name of their own policy prevention through deterrence. And it was part of the 1994 strategic plan, and it was, you know, in, in like the, the most one of the most recent um, border buildups. There was one in like the early and mid 90s, and then there was another one in the mid to late 2000s. And uh, they were starting to to build walls, fences, put more infrastructure, and send more agents to primarily the urban zones, looking in. Uh, the El Paso Juarez, the Noales Nogales, and the the the, the San Diego Tijuana corridors, and what, what the idea was that they would um, build up uh, enforcement zones around these urban areas, and they would send migrants, they would force migrants to cross in more remote areas, and the idea was that um, it would be so difficult to cross in these mostly desert. Um, like um, almost completely unpopulated areas that uh, that they wouldn't do it. But, um, you know, we, we think that that is uh, slightly naive. You know, we've been seeing for a long time that when a migrant is, is deciding to take a, a very difficult, costly uh, journey, that they will do it. And they have a good reason to do it, be it for family, family separation. So they want to reunify with their family um, for economic hardship or to escape violence or persecution in the home country. So migrants have been making journeys for those reasons for as long as humanity has existed. And, uh, you know, a segment of a wall is not going to stop them. So sending them into a region that makes that journey more perilous, more injurious, uh, more deadly uh, is like inevitably and knowingly going to cause um, some some serious harm to these people. So um, it, it was an intentional decision, intentional policy to create this crisis along the border. Um, this is again prevention through deterrence. You know, in place since since ninety four, but really um, every subsequent border buildup, uh, border enforcement, uh, you know, doubling down has made the problem even worse. And, and this is something we're pretty scared of right now as the incoming administration is promising more walls, doubling of the number of border patrol agents, et cetera. So it's going to push even more people into even further in more remote regions. So La Coalition opened over 1,200 cases of missing persons in 2015. That's That's what the report indicates. And... Uh, this is a, a crisis, and there are s several methods that are used uh, that are detailed in the first part of this series. Uh, they're called deadly apprehension practices in the report. Can you talk about some of these uh, tactics that are used? Sure. So um, to kind of answer, talk to both things that you mentioned here. First is yeah, the, the missing 
people report. So there was 1,200 in, in, in 2015, and you know, we haven't closed 2016 yet, but it, it, it's going to be over 2,000 uh, missing migrant reports that the Derechos Humanos has taken. Um, and so these are people who, you know, I talked about people being injured or being um, killed or dying while they're trying to cross. But another big part of this report is looking at not just the numbers of people who are dying, but the numbers of people who we never find. And so those are the, what we're, who we're calling the disappeared. And you know, we can talk more about that term. Um, and, and, and just to throw out a, a quick number. So we know and Border Patrol has acknowledged that at least 6,000 human remains have been recovered in the borderlands since the year 2000. So 6,000 since the year 2000. The number of people who have been disappeared is far greater. We don't know that number because it's impossible to know, but, you know, it could be in the tens of thousands. Um, so you then you mentioned the apprehension tactics. So this is in part what's causing this crisis. One is, which I've already talked about, the policy. So building border infrastructure, walls, surveillance towers, agent placements, etc. Another is the actual methods that the Border Patrol uses to try to make arrests in the desert. So we don't think it's possible for the Border Patrol to attempt to make an arrest without in, in, in a rural region without causing serious harm and, and but sometimes death. Um, it, it's very different than policing in an urban area. It, it's, it's, you know, really not related at all or, you know, very different. Um, so some of the tactics that they use um, are they tackle people when they're trying to arrest them. They chase them. They chase them with dogs. They chase them with vehicles. And when you're running um, in a desert you are almost inevitably going to get injured or more seriously, maybe even die. Um, there's, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we've documented many different instances. I mean, we have some numbers, too, of, of all the people that we talked to specifically about recent cro border crossing experiences. Um, over 40% of them, after being chased, were injured in some way. So that's almost a half. Um, and so that's not just being chased, actually, by the Border Patrol. So when um, they see an, uh, an agent's vehicle, they start running. And, of course, you know, they're running through thick underbrush or uh, being chased, like, through walls of cactus, etc. Um, but also almost 20 percent of those times they were injured directly by the Border Patrol agent. So I remember talking to one young man um, while we were doing an interview, and he was actually run over by an, a Border Patrol ATV. It actually ran over him twice. He was he kind of ducked for cover and tried to hide, and the agents were, you know, chasing them, and they ran him directly over. They realized what had happened, and he, the Border Patrol agent backed up and ran over him again. I don't, you know, we don't know if it was intentional or not, but these are the sorts of, quote, accidents that happen when, Agents are trying to apprehend a migrant in the desert. Um, uh, fortunately, he survived, though it ran over his head. Um, but we have a, you know, other cases where during the chase, people don't survive. Uh, one man that we document, um, the, the brother of one man told us about his, his sibling who was being chased by the Border Patrol, and he fell off a 200-foot cliff and died. Um, another very serious th issue that we see is, is the use of helicopters. So helicopters can spot migrants, but how is a helicopter in, you know, chasing a group of migrants into an area where it's almost impossible to actually make a landing going to actually affect an arrest? It's not, but they use them consistently. And what happens is they, you know, do these low flybys and these dustings and they scare the hell out of the migrants, the group, they send them scattering. And when they scatter, and this is a, a really important part of the report that we talk about, when they scatter, they often leave behind their backpack, their water, their food, and they are, they're broken up with their guide and they're by themselves a lot of times. And if you are lost in the desert, and that happens very frequently when you're scattered, um, you're not going to survive very long at all. You know, you, you, you might, you might make it a day or two wandering around, but it, a lot of these people don't know exactly where they're heading without their guides and alone, lost, scared, oftentimes recently injured, without water or food. 
you really don't last very long. And, and that then you become one of the potentially um, people that we find deceased or un- the, you add to the number, the unknown number of the disappeared. Sorry, so I, you know, I just, um, you know, just just talking about the the the, the basic story and the, the number we have from that. So, you know, after doing this study, um, in um, the, the the people that we talked to in, in our survey, um, over forty percent of the cases in which they were chased, a, a group was chased by the border patrol. At least one person in the group was lost. So, forty percent, someone's lost. This policy, by the way, uh, you. The, the report points to the fact that this kind of outcome, which then leads to a certain chain of reactions, is actually an indication that the policy or sorry, the strategy is successful. So I'm just going to list these off uh, for people who are listening uh, that you point out that fee increases by smugglers, increased incidence of more sophisticated methods of smuggling at checkpoints, more documentation fraud, more violence at attempted entries, possible increasing complaints from groups probably like the ones that are behind this report, uh, potential for more protests against immigration policy. That actual protests against the injustice of this policy is a sign to the Border Patrol that they're doing a good job. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like the, the policy is driving people further out into the remote regions, but, you know, and, and right now in 2016, um, the number of border crossings are down by, by all, you know, studies are saying that, but at the same time, people who need to get across are still making the journey. Um, so it, it, it is, I guess effective in some way in 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 it's pushing migration into a different region, but it's not effective in the supposed overall policy of, of stopping migration. You're not going to stop it with a wall or with agents or with violent apprehension tactics. Um, you know, the, the only way to really look at at stopping migration is to look at global inequalities, um, stopping deportations which rip people out of their homes and from their families and. And you know, put them on the other side of a of a of a political boundary. Um, those things will stop migration. Um, but throwing more money, throwing more wall construction, and more agents with guns and tasers at certain regions of the border isn't going to stop migration. It's going to make it more deadly. It's going to make it more deadly. It's going to you know result in in more disappearances. Yeah, I just think that that section of the report really brings home the callousness within the uh, Border Patrol's policy towards uh, border crossers. And I, I was – I'm interested in – since you worked on this report uh, and I – and perhaps you can speak to some of your background with the issue if you would like. But when you were – Going through and becoming aware of the scope of this crisis, what particularly might have stunned you? Well, you know, I, I think there's, you know, that, that's something that I and I think probably other people who work closely at the issue struggle with, that all of it's stunning, all of it's shocking. You know, this is a, an ongoing daily crisis. Um, you know, it, it, it's been this policy has been in effect for over 20 years and in, in some way, we can get a little bit jaded, but that's only because, um, you know, it, it's been happening for so long. But if you stop and you really think about what's going on at this moment, and you know, for example, like right now that there are migrants crossing the desert, right now they're, they're out there hiding, being basically hunted by the Border Patrol, um, dying and disappearing, um, you know, that's stunning. That's that that should you know give you pause. And then every time you talk to someone who's 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 gone across, you know, even if um, their interaction with the border patrol um, wasn't violent, you know, the reputation of the border patrol um, is is well known among migrants, and it's scary. And it's scary every time they go across. And and you mentioned before that they're you know pushed into these remote corridors and and where they're you know. Like now, like the, the crossing zones are controlled in, in, in 
greater part by, you know, some criminal organizations. And so they're, you know, marginalized in that way too. And they're put into, you know, even more vulnerable situations even before they cross. And, and that is an effect of the U.S. Border Patrol policy. So, you know, th- there's nothing that's not shocking about this when you're actually talking to a person. Um, these people, not only in their, you know, journey actually in the desert, but then afterwards, their, you know, arrest, their mistreatment in Border Patrol short-term holding facilities, sometimes they're months in a detention facility for crossing a border. They're, you know, being shackled, thrown before a court, and then their deportation, like all of it's terrifying. And, you know, so it's it's hard to pinpoint any of it, but just if you start talking to people who've suffered this or looking at the, the daily practices, um, you know, we, we should all be shocked and, and, and trying to change this issue right now. And then uh, finally, uh, this isn't a uh, partisan politics question. I want to stick to policy, but uh, as Donald Trump takes office, uh, we have the president of Barack Obama. We have the presidents of George W. Bush, and then, of course, this reaches back to Bill Clinton's administration. So uh, regardless of of party, we've had some very harsh uh, – policies towards border cross, inhumane policies towards border crossers as detailed in this report. Uh, Is there anything you think people need to understand in in challenging the way people are treated, the way uh, this missing persons crisis is handled going forward? I, I just, I wonder if people actually understand the gravity of what's going on with people and think that they're going to read reports like this under Donald Trump and this is a fresh new thing that Donald Trump is just doing to people. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you started saying it in, in the beginning of that question that, that inhumanity on the border is not a partisan issue. You know, since the Reagan administration, as you mentioned, um, enhancing border security has come with every single, nearly every single, um, you know, border immigration law that we've seen. That's that's over 30 years ago. Um, so Reagan administration, then the Clinton administration, then Barack Obama, who has also, you know, kind of fi- finished building some of the walls that Bush put into place and has deported two and a half million people. So, Though Trump promises to do that in the first couple of months of his presidency, it's nothing new. It, it will probably, it will certainly make things worse if, if he does that and if he tries to build um, the wall that he's talking about. And, you know, of course, you know, that, that's another thing that, you know, especially if you live here in, in the borderlands, that is, is just sh- shocking about how people talk about the need to build a wall when we have over 700 miles of wall right now, 700 miles of, of, of barriers, fencing and wall. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be, um, that much of a, of a change in policy. Um, but perhaps the, the efficiency of it or the, um, the, 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 how, how robust and how quickly he's going to want to, to, um, enact those deportations and, and build up the infrastructure is going to be a slight difference. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's been ongoing and people can, can turn their heads and talk about, um, you know, the need for protecting our, our, our borders. Um, but in, you know, if you look at the history of it, you know, that, that there's been for, for over a hundred years, there's been, you know, racist, xenophobic, um, economically exploitative policies that have been crushing people who are trying to cross the border. And, um, it's nothing new, but we need to um, shine a light on it, and and that's part of what we're trying to do with this report. So talk about the deaths, talk about the, you know, vulnerabilization and marginalization, but also talk about the disappearances, which is a fraught word. It's something that you know people think, oh, that happens in Mexico with the forty-three students from Ayotzinapa, or that happened in Argentina in the seventies and eighties, but it's happening right now in the United States. People are being disappeared. And their families know nothing of them and probably will never know anything of them. And it's an enormous humanitarian tragedy. 
Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about uh, this report. I mean, we're barely scratching the surface about some of the uh, stories that, that are in there, but to really get the effect of the report, um, you have to go and, and look at uh, the, the accounts that were collected about each of these people. And so uh, when we post this uh, episode, we'll share this first part report. And then if I'm correct, the second part will be coming out uh, the early part of next year. Correct. The, the second and third part, we're both, we're hoping to, to publish them both in 2017. Excellent. All right, John. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, all the best. Good talking to you, Kevin. All right. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. I'm joined by Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And we're very pleased to have Rania back in the United States. Yeah, welcome to me. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know what the she... hell did I come back to? I don't like, know if you're excited. I like, got back and turned on the news, and it was like Kanye West spotted at Trump Hotel with Trump or something. I'm just like, what? Did I just, like, enter an alternate universe? Uh, yeah, you should, uh, <laughs> you should go back to your uh, transportation and, and, uh, and, and backtrack and see if you can try it again and maybe uh, you'll land. Maybe end up, like, yeah, like, come back to a normal place. Yeah, it's really weird. But, yeah, thank you for the – thank you for the – And uh, so you've been doing um, um, tough, uh, probably not easy work – over um well you were based in in lebanon right and yeah i was in beirut and i went and then i spent a lot i spent some time in syria and um, which is lovely this year this time of year i have to say uh in the last uh week uh there's been something going on with a with a city i it's like uh, i think it's called aleppo i don't know i've never heard of it um um, i mean (laughs) i i know uh, a little bit about it but i i think you know a lot more about it and again, not to okay, so not to diminish like the humanitarian crisis that's going on there in Aleppo, but people well, there's been a humanitarian crisis going on in Aleppo for like a couple, like few years now. Yeah. Um, so and, to jump yeah. into the politics of it and, and everything that's been going on, I'll just I, I just want to preface before we get into what you uh, re- covered and reported on and 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 know being in the U.S. immediately. There was just people who seemed to be going insane, crazy, and panicking about something really awful and genocidal that was happening in Aleppo. Uh, you're familiar with the tweets. People were like, "Babies are being burned. Things are things are happening, and it, and, and it's horrific." And then t- at at this point, um, I was like, Samantha Power, who is an awful individual, has <laughs> compared. It uh, to he she's uh, comparing what happened in Aleppo to Rwanda and to Iraq's gassing of the Kurds um, and also uh, to Srebrenica um, um, or to Kosovo. Um, uh, so uh, and, and again, this is all along the lines of like responsibility pr- to protect and stuff like that, uh, or humanitarian intervention guidelines, believing that there was it was important to intervene for civilians. Uh, so anyways, given all the panic that's been going on here in the U.S. around what took place in Aleppo, I'm glad that we can talk to you. I'm glad that I can talk to you and get a better sense of like what's actually going on in Syria. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people who were probably if they haven't been haven't like necessarily been following everything that's been happening in Syria, don't really understand what's happening in Aleppo. They just see these horrifying stories like. You know, the Daily Beast posted something about, like, all these women committed suicide uh, because they'd rather kill themselves than be raped. Um, Like, just, I mean, there's these crazy claims going around, and I'm not saying that this is completely, like, anything and everything about anything the Syrian government has done is, is, like, fabricated or anything like that. They've obviously committed atrocities. But the kinds of claims that have been floating around and becoming news headlines are literally, like, there's no evidence there's no evidence for these things except for the claims of, like, uh, rebel media people, like rebel activists on Twitter. 
and um, other places. And it's just, it's like utterly shocking that like a handful of tweets about Hezbollah's like burning children in Aleppo can suddenly um, turn into headlines. I mean, it's really, really absurd and really disturbing. And especially in light of all this like controversy about fake news, um, when you see like, you know, major media outlets pushing and disseminating uh, claims that have yet to be even a little bit verified. Like there's literally zero evidence to prove this is happening. And it's just like, it's really shocking. It really, really has been shocking this week to see. I mean, you can literally, you could say, you could probably just like tweet out anything like Russia just nuked Aleppo and the New York times might run the headline. Who knows? Um, but the point is what's happening in Aleppo is actually very similar to what's happening in Mosul um, at the moment, uh, in a, it, which is that, you know, you've got rebels. And here's another thing I, I do want to point out, like this week, one thing I've noticed with all the media around Aleppo is that major media outlets are failing over and over. They're, they're, they're not offering any context or any details about who the rebels are in Aleppo. They're just saying the Syrian rebels. And they used to specify what that meant. And this week they haven't. Um, and I think that's very, very deliberate. And I think the reason is because the Syrian rebels are al-Nusra, which is basically al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. They're a Har al-Sham, a um, Syrian rebel uh, group that is, like, funded by and armed by Qatar and is really, really hardline, like, jihadist. Um, and basically, like, has killed minorities, has used caged minorities as human shields um, proudly on video. <laughs> like, it's not just me making that up. Um, these are the two dominant fighting forces among the Syrian rebels. In Aleppo, there's Jaysh al-Islam, or the Isla like the Army of Islam, which is another group of, of rebels. I think it's a bunch of different rebel groups under one name that has committed atrocities um, that would make people, like, um, like it would give chills to people. Like they, I mean, all of these groups, they have Al Qaeda style ideologies have been running Aleppo. There's, you know, we've seen reports out about the behavior of these groups. They run like Sharia courts where they sentence people to like die for really like minor things. Um, they've summarily executed people. They've looted. So these people, these rebels, um, under the banner of the FSA, which later turned into like, you know, Al Qaeda, like which later became Al Qaeda and, um, Ahar al Sham and all these other groups. They invaded Aleppo in 2012. Like, so when you hear about rebels in Aleppo, it's really important to understand that, yes, there was an uprising in Syria of different kinds in different parts of Syria, some of them calling for democracy, some of them calling for, you know, um, some of them calling for not-so-democratic ideals. But regardless, there was an uprising. Aleppo didn't really experience that uprising. There was, like, a, a few university protests, but nothing major. The vast majority of Aleppo has always been pro-government from the beginning. And so Aleppo was actually pretty, like, uh, secure through 2011 then come 2012 the rebels who had gathered had been armed you know um through turkey and had a lot of foreign fighters among them as well but also a lot of them were syrians from the countryside from rural areas they basically invaded the city of aleppo and like forcibly with arms took over neighborhoods um, and if you look back at Western media reports during that time, they're pretty honest about that. Um, that. Because at that point, there were still journalists able to be on the ground in East Aleppo. So they took over all these neighborhoods in East Aleppo. And in fact, many of the people who lived in those neighborhoods fled when the armed groups took over. Um, they didn't want any part of it. They It was like a nightmare. And they basically surrounded Aleppo and placed it under siege. And so the government-held area of Aleppo, like, you know, was under siege. They were cut off from, like, food and water at times throughout several years. Nobody gave a crap then because it was U.S.-backed rebels doing it. But that's what happened in Aleppo. The, these rebels were never popular in, a rebel, in, in, in Aleppo. Anybody who tells you that, like, this, this, this is, like, a free or liberated area of Aleppo is lying. That's just not true, um, especially if you talk to the people from those neighborhoods. So the point is, is that this context is completely missing from the mainstream media. I mean, Kevin, it's really shocking. We've just spent the last 15 years with our government invoking al-Qaeda to go to war around the globe endlessly. And now all of a sudden, al-Qaeda are the good guys in Aleppo, and the U.S. has basically outsourced it's war on Syria to al-Qaeda, and the U.S. media is, like, not only whitewashing and sanitizing them, they're romanticizing them as some sort of liberation force. It's really, really, really shocking. Um, 
I don't know if you, I well, the, what I wanted to say beyond that, though, is like what's happening right now in Aleppo, the reason I say it's like Mosul is because al-Qaeda is not that different from ISIS. Um, they've behaved in similar ways where they've come and taken over areas. People flee. Some people who stayed get stuck there, or maybe they wanted to stay, but for the most part get stuck there. They hold them hostage. They don't let people leave, um, basically ultimately using them as like human shields for their own agenda. And um, what you have now is like in, in Mosul, where you have Iraqi forces on the ground backed up by U.S. airstrikes that are basically taking back neighborhoods from ISIS in Mosul, East Mosul, and East Aleppo. It was the same thing. You have Syrian armed forces on the ground uh, backed up by Russian airstrikes that are taking back parts of East Aleppo. Now, you can argue, um, and it's totally, and I would agree with you, if you want to call the way that both the U.S. and Russia have gone about doing this, they've both um, destroyed these kinds of cities, whether it's been taken over by ISIS or al-Qaeda, They've destroyed cities as they've gone to try and take them back from these groups. But um, regardless, like, of uh, you can talk about how they've done that and, you know, the atrocities that they've committed in order to do that. But regardless of that, it really is so striking to see, on the one hand, the U.S. media losing its shit over East Aleppo being taken back from al-Qaeda groups versus their celebration of Mosul, areas of Mosul being taken back from ISIS. <laughs> I mean... It's it's really I mean just the double the, the double standard is so jarring, um, but that's what's happened in Aleppo is that's why you see people panicking and freaking out people who are very pro opposition who put a pretend the opposition is like some democratic force that it's not um, who support the Syrian rebels which is most of the U.S. media they're losing their shit and freaking the fuck out and just throwing anything they can um, during a moment when the side that they've supported and romanticized is losing. And the reason they're losing is because their benefactors have stopped supporting them. That means, like, like Turkey has stopped giving them, like, whatever they want through the border. And so that's why these rebels, these Syrian rebel al-Qaeda groups have collapsed so quickly. Um, and so whenever this kind of stuff happens, the rebel, like, media that the U.S. and the U.K. have largely helped train and fund... Um, goes ape shit and starts like throwing out any sort of accusations against the Syrian army that it can anything to try and provoke Western uh, intervention or even Gulf state intervention to help save them because it's dead. They're desperate. They're losing very, very badly. And so that's why you hear these these unverified stories about, um, you know, Aleppo, like about like massacres of, of children and women by like in Aleppo and burning people and raping women that are that haven't been verified. And the one last thing uh, that I will add to that is um, is like as I mean, like right now uh, in West Aleppo and even people who've left East Aleppo, who've managed to finally get out of East Aleppo, um, these are people who maybe they don't like they're, they're actually a lot of them are pissed off at the government some think the government didn't do enough to help like to help um save them from al-qaeda they really do i mean that's, that's the sentiment i got from people i spoke to when i was there um is they were pissed off the government they wanted the government to crush the rebels harder uh and then there are other people who um their families were on the other side and they haven't seen them in three years or four years um and so there's been a lot of celebration in West Aleppo and some of the areas that have been taken back, despite all the horrors that have taken place, the government has done has committed atrocities. The rebels have committed atrocities. A lot of people are dead. People are just they're exhausted and they're happy it's over is the sentiment I, I've been seeing and getting. And it's just that to me makes sense, just like when ISIS is um you know is removed from an area people celebrate despite the horrors and i was really disappointed to see a lot of people pointing to those celebrations and making like the people who are doing it just like painting them as like assadish chills who all like just like hate their own people or like they're somehow like israelis who celebrate when gaza gets bombed people weren't celebrating east aleppo getting bombed they were celebrating the end of what has been a nightmare for them and yeah, I don't know if you have any questions, but I think that kind of covers it. <laughs> well, the two points I really wanted to emphasize here is the fact that there are individuals both in our government and also who consider themselves to be leading human rights activists who are uh, against this or aren't open to considering what it would be like if you were in Aleppo and you had forces from Syria and Russia, uh, the Syrian government, come and actually free you from this 
control over you and, 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 and the failure to consider what life must be like in Aleppo. Uh, just the things that I'm hearing is like, like it seems like uh, what you're saying uh, confirms you know, what I've understood, which is that probably uh, these Al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, groups wouldn't want people to be leaving the that part of Aleppo because if people leave, then there's going to be stories that get out about how they're ruling and then are going to have to contend with uh, criticism about how their government and it, it probably can't withstand that kind. Well, more importantly, yeah, more importantly, yeah. if you have no civilians in the area that you control, then it's fi- like then basically like, it, you know, there's no reason that the state that's that's fighting you is going to like refrain from just completely bombing, like bombing you no matter where you are. Um, and that is not to say, I mean, obviously if you look at East Aleppo, it's all basically been bombed and demolished and destroyed by all the fighting and a lot of that's airstrikes. Um, but some of it, a good portion of it too, is also what the rebels have done there. But yeah, if like you remove civilians or like the, like the one thing keeping from like, you know, you being completely, completely targeted more than you already have. So you need civilian, you need a civilian population to be able to be embedded in, um, in order to fight the kind of guerrilla warfare these groups were fighting. And so that's another big part of it. But yeah, you're right. Um, and that's another thing I've been really irritated by is like, a lot of the video footage you see of, of people talking to residents who were trapped in East Aleppo, everyone's like, those are just actors. They have no choice but to say what the Assad regime wants. And it's like, okay, dude, so are you saying you can't believe anything a single Syrian ever says about life under rebels? Like, but you can believe what, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, but you can believe anything that rebel media says or rebel activists say, like that, who are literally operating under the auspices of Al Qaeda. Like it's just the double standards are so fucking insane. And then the it other, the other thing mad. that's really uh, we could not overstate in our conversation how problematic it is is this thing of being so certain about what people think happened. Like the the, the these human rights groups, these organizations, and also journalists that I, again their sources aren't coming from people that you, you 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 can get information from rebel sources i think that i don't want to tell people that you can't get information from rebel sources i don't think that you're suggesting that but when you do get that you do have to recognize that they have certain interests they have an in, agenda yeah in the same agenda, way yeah. in the same way that you uh, would recognize that with government sources in Syria. And so you have to verify. You have to find some way to independently verify what they are telling you. If they if they tell you hundreds of people were just executed in the streets of Aleppo and and, and not allowed to evacuate, then you have to corroborate that information. And and perhaps two or three weeks down the line that would be corroborated. But in the immediate, um, in the first 48 hours for people who run human rights organizations and for people who are involved in journalism to actually go after people like you and I who who are reluctant to jump to conclusions before we have full facts is is just despicable. It really is. And beyond that, it's also the fact that you have people coming out of East Aleppo that are telling you, I walked for seven hours with my children in the dead of night because they were shooting at anybody who tried to leave. Like, or my parents were killed by the rebels for leaving. Like, it's like you have stories like this coming out and you, I mean, they're not being mentioned in the mainstream except for in passing buried deep at the end of like a story in like a sentence is that there's been accusations of, I mean, and it's really, it's really disgusting because these are the groups that the U.S. has armed and supported. Like, this is our doing. And this is one thing that really, this is one of the most frustrating aspects about what's happened to Syria and in Syria is you know, with Iraq, it was very blatant. Like the U.S. government went to war against Iraq and invaded Iraq with U.S. forces. So you knew it was the U.S. doing it. In Syria, Obama has outsourced a, a war on Syria to a bunch of armed jihadist groups. Literally, that is what he has done. Knowingly, he's knowingly done this. I mean, like you've got reports out from like I actually do I want to I want to just because people don't seem people don't know this I mean it's really it's a huge this should be a massive scandal um, and people have no idea whatsoever that this is what's gone down 
back in, um, let's see, warning. I mean, they had warnings that these groups were dominated by Al-Qaeda as early as 2012. So this is from a report from McClatchy from last year. Um, extensive interviews with Syria policymakers from the Obama administration, some of whom spoke, whom spoke on the record and others who requested anonymity so as to freely describe the administration's behind-the-scenes debates, reveal that the Obama administration was warned early on that al-Qaeda-linked fighters were gaining prominence within the anti-Assad struggle. Senior officials chose to look the other way, however, and flog a misleading narrative of a viable moderate force. Today, the same extremists have seized wide swaths of Syria and Iraq, uprooting millions of people, threatening the stability of U.S. regional allies and sucking the United States into another open-ended conflict in the Middle East. So, I mean, and it goes into detail of like what people are saying is like they just looked the other way because they felt that getting rid of Assad was more important than been empowering like Al Qaeda and jihadists. Um, and it's I mean, it's just so utterly shocking. And the U.S., even as they knew this as early as 2012, went on to um, to embark on a policy of it was like one hundred billion dollars every year, starting in 2013, at least of arming these fanatics arming and training these fanatics basically anybody who said i'm moderate rebel and i belong to this group okay here's some money here's some weapons that's uh, that's what was happening and i mean some of these groups like the nor um ld or the the zinke brigade this group operates in, in, Ale in east aleppo is one of the dominant groups also the same like sort of al-qaeda style ideology uh, a few months ago beheaded on video a palestinian like child a minor um on video and uh, this was a U.S.-supported moderate group. Um, that's the kind of people that we were supporting in Syria. And that's why Syrians are they, they hate they hate the U.S. because of this, because they feel that their, their country has been invaded by Al Qaeda. By, by, and they, they don't they don't make a distinction, by the way, when you talk to Syrians, they don't make a distinction about Al Qaeda versus ISIS versus, um, you know, uh, Ahrar al-Shem. They're all the same to them. And, you know, especially to those who lived under them. And they're really pissed off because the U.S., they feel the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar did this to them. They invaded their country. They like like their country's been invaded by Al Qaeda because like of a war um, that was, you know, pushed by these countries. And so my point is, is that. With with what Obama's on in Syria, no one knows. No one. Americans have no idea that we went to war against Syria. They don't know. They think, if anything, they're just being they're being told by U.S. media that Obama didn't do enough. And because Obama sat on the sidelines, Syrians have just been massacred. Like, it's just the most absurd shit imaginable. To add to that, um, I highlighted this. I, I, I did a whole thing on Obama's legacy and the human cost of all the warfare that's been going on in the past eight years. Uh, part of it, I uh, covered Syria. Uh, and... His, as you're saying, his administration actually has come up with a term. You'll probably laugh at this. Um, I hadn't heard this term, but in a paper that was put out uh, this month, they actually said that uh, they are giving, uh, they, they are arming, quote unquote, indigenous ground forces. Unquote. <laughs> when did they say that? Uh, it's in this. It's in this thing uh, that was written. It's uh, it's called a framework. Um, it it's, uh, basically covers the, the the legal frameworks around uh, the war making of the Obama administration. I, di I I'm doing a series right now on this because this is a like uh, multi-page, uh, like twenty to thirty-page document that has been put together to try and give the Obama administration cover before Donald Trump becomes president and everyone panics that executive power and war-making powers have been claimed and expanded to such a degree that Donald Trump is going to uh, abuse them and they'll be the Obama administration's fault. Um, but anyways, the thing that I highlighted um, was that the New York Times actually reported in June that this is a quote. Weapons shipped into Jordan by the Central Intelligence Agency in Saudi Arabia intended for Syrian rebels were systematically stolen by Jordanian intelligence operatives and sold to arms merchants on the black market. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I mean, a lot of things like that happened. Yeah, and so and actually those weapons, some of them have been tracked back to the United States and used in at least a couple shootings. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, and uh, so... 
and, and again, the militias that they're that they're arming, um, you know, you can't understate that. I mean, so you can't overstate how the equipment that the Islamic State is using is coming from uh, these opposition forces and also like the Iraqi military. I mean, w- w- would it be fair to say that like there's a fair uh, interplay going on between Syria and Iraq of like weaponry and equipment moving in between those borders. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, there's the whole big Libya scandal too. Don't forget all the weapons that we sent and flooded Libya with ended up all over the place as well. Um, And on a larger scale, you know, if we expand it to just the region of like talking about Obama's wars, we don't need to leave the issue of Aleppo if you've got more to say about Aleppo. But also this week, there's been people talking about uh, the fact that the Obama administration has finally put its foot down and decided to halt part of a shipment of uh, so-called precision munitions to Saudi Arabia for use in their massive uh, destruction of Yemen and how much uh, – like I believe the report from – I think it's uh, – I want to say it's UNICEF. UNICEF. Yeah, like every 10 minutes a child is dying in, in Yemen yeah. and something like 400 over 400,000 children are um are facing acute severe malnutrition that's insane and the destruction to civilian infrastructure is just staggering and 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 what they're doing and Yemen was already a pretty poor country anyways before the poorest country yeah. in the yeah. in the region and so it's even worse and 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 so uh, again, at any moment, uh, this is what journalist Iona Craig was saying on Democracy Now! At any moment, the real thing that they could do is stop refueling Saudi Arabian jets, um, in, and, and that would bring this bombing campaign to a halt. But the Obama administration has actually calculated that they could just not give some weapons to Saudi Arabia – that would kind of take care of some of the criticism, maybe tamp it down a bit. Uh, and then because it shows that they're a little concerned, they can continue to massively bomb. And they're actually been pulled into – in all of these scenarios here, whether we're talking about Syria or Yemen, they're being pulled into sectarian wars uh, that really – uh, should not be internationalized that really by by us getting involved we are making them much much more worse and making them far more prolonged than they ever would have been i mean what's going on right now in yemen uh there are ca- diplomatic cables that were released by uh u.s army whistleblower chelsea manning that actually show that for the longest time we resisted being pulled into a, a conflict between the yemen government um, and and Houthi uh, rebels in Yemen, and that and that Saudi Arabia uh, had been pushing to uh, get involved in, and and get weaponry that they could use to attack Houthi rebels, and that even Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, you know, had had considered you know whether he could get weaponry to attack, and and how there had been propaganda pushed by Saudi Arabia about Iran being behind the. Uh, sectarian fights in in the southern part of Yemen, and so it's it, it's it's kind of it's it's kind of similar to Syria in the sense that like we've known that there have been things going on there between different factions, and we've been pulled into uh, taking sides with um, parts. Uh, and and again, like what you're saying, we're now supporting these Al Qaeda affiliated rebels. You know, I mean, this is there's also something really disgusting happening right now, too. And in, in, in all of this, I mean, because of the U.S. sides with the Gulf states, which are, um, you know, like a lot of them are Wahhabi states, which like basically they're like, um, you know, like these like monarchies and dictatorships, entire you know, tyrannical regimes uh, that basically like you they try and like try and claim to speak for Sunni Muslims. They're like, we're, you know, we're speaking for the Sunnis and we're fighting the evil Shias that are being directed by Iran. And you see that same rhetoric coming out of the U.S. sometimes from, like, people who aren't even Muslim. It's really shocking. There was, like, an article in uh, in Reuters a, a few days ago in the title. Uh, it's all about the, um, like, warning and fear-mongering about the coming, like, uh, the coming Shia crescent, um, which is really, I mean, it's like, the, the title of it is literally... 
The fall of Aleppo puts Iran on cusp of Shiite crescent of influence. And it's basically just like taking on the uh, the narrative of these Gulf states, uh, fear-mongering about this like Shiite crescent from like Hezbollah and Lebanon all the way to Iran that's going to like do all these mean things to Sunnis. And I'm just like, dude, like, I mean, I really sometimes... Like and, and the reason I bring that up is because in Yemen the narrative is that the Houthis are Shiite, which I don't even think is accurate, um, and and like that they've received like some support from Iran, although it's the support that, that they've received. I mean, it's usually over exaggerated by Westerners and the Gulf states, and that that's why like Saudi Arabia has to do this, and that's why the U.S. has to support Saudi Arabia because it's all about preventing like Iran from becoming more powerful. Um, and so I really do worry when I see. Like with the Trump and the people he surrounded himself with, there's also a lot of anti-Iran hatred that always comes out in like the Shiites are evil kind of way. Um, and I do so I do worry about what's going to happen during a Trump administration. Like, are they going to try to go to war with Iran? Um, or even despite Trump, like Trump has been saying, we don't know who these rebels are in Syria and like whatever he wants to stop the war there and work with Putin. But even if that happens, like. He's surrounding his administration with people who want to go to war with Iran. Um, so, yeah, that's I don't know where I was. That's kind of where I was headed with that. <laughs> I well, little, well, all you okay. have to know is that someone's going to tell him who the rebels are and whoever that person is, whether it's this uh, General Michael Flynn, who's uh, well, disturbingly going to be part of his cabinet and apparently brief him like four out of the five days of the week. Maybe uh, we should all be frightened because this guy has uh, views about radical Islam that maybe are just a, a, a smidge more moderate than John Bolton. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> I, not to mention he's a moderate Islam, moderate Islamophobe. He's a moderate Islamophobe. Uh, <laughs> you guys yeah. are adding moderate in front of everything that shouldn't have that in front of it moderate white supremacist moderate nazis which moderate. is actually something the fbi said in like the 60s i think they were like we're recruiting moderate nazis they're, they're, <laughs> they're moderate imperialists moderate um, imperialists. but uh it it is just so to wrap our discussion oh but there's actually there's one more thing i want to mention i'm sorry this is like a little disorganized in, in the way i'm talking about it but and in, in, um, in reference to, in regard to what our government has done in Syria with arming and funding and empowering these jihadist groups, there's a lot of parallels to the 1980s. And I actually have been going back and reading articles from the 1980s about the Afghan rebels. And it's kind of uncanny, like the same shit, same shit, same, same talking points, same we got to arm the moderate rebels. Meanwhile, we know who the moderate rebels were. They were the Mujahideen who basically became like the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Um, the point is, is that right now it's really concerning because in terms of like what happens down the line, um, you've got a lot of like these rebels, a lot of these jihadists are pissed at the West for like basically like they feel like they've been abandoned by the West because they kind of have. Um, and that's why they're losing. And also like they've been destroyed by Russia and Syria and the Syrian government. They're pissed off. And they, like, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see, um, I mean, some of these people will end up in the West. Unfortunately, they'll come as refugees. They might, like, that's probably going to happen. And the reason I mention this isn't to sound like some right-wing demagogue. My point is to say that what the U.S. has done in Syria will have a backlash. And it's going to have a backlash with what we've already seen in Europe, which is attacks in Europe. We've seen attacks, in, in, especially in France. And there's going to be a t there's been some attacks in other areas of Europe from like ISIS or like Al Qaeda, you know, um, Al Qaeda linked people. And so I think you're going to see more of that in Europe. And it's easier to do in Europe because of Europe's proximity to the Middle East. Um, and you might see some of that in the U.S. at some point. But my point is, is that in the era of the resurgence of the far right in the West, in Europe and the U.S., these are you're going to see these kinds of attacks and it's going to end up the backlash is going to be against Arabs and Muslims and refugees in the West. That's who's going to end up fucked because of all this. Um, and it's just going to, cause it's going to fuel the conspiracy theories and the fear mongering and the like hateful anti-Muslim and anti-Arab rhetoric of the far right from Trump to like Marine Le Pen. And so. Well, you know, what Obama has done in Syria, I think, is so dangerous. It's so, so dangerous. And it's going to empower, um, like empowering right wingers in the Middle East, which is what they which is what supporting Al Qaeda means. You're empowering a really far fascist right um, ultimately ends up empowering the far right in our own countries.
Well, that's a crucial point because not enough people tie the hatred and racism towards Muslims here in the U.S. to the policies of empire abroad because they're connected. And 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 not only under Barack Obama but also under George W. Bush. I mean we have this myth of him after September 11th being all – uh, sensitive towards Muslim people, and and uh, there's this uh, myth about the weeks after September 11th about how uh, his administration, um, because he was at the head, um, you know, made sure on September 12th that like we didn't turn our backs on Muslim people. Meanwhile, the FBI, uh, and with support of the Attorney General, was rounding mm-hmm. up people, especially in New York City, and putting them into uh, indefinite detention um, before they were even charged with any crimes to just interrogate them and try and figure out if they were linked to linked to anybody who carried out the September 11th attacks. And so, yeah, that, like absolutely. And again, uh, the people who yeah. carried out September 11th, like those people were empowered by an ideology that was supported in the 80s by the United States. The U.S., whenever it's felt that it was – the U.S. has always has done this repeatedly. I mean it's just like you're just repeating a history. Um, and, and it's like – it's funny because it's like a, a lot of the same players. It's just in Syria instead of Afghanistan. But you're repeating the shit where the U.S. uses like ra- like radical religious zealots um, with Saudi Arabia's help <laughs> against Russia. In the past, it was against the Soviets. And so this is going to come back to haunt us. No, like, no question that it will come back to haunt us. And again, it's going to, like you mentioned just now, it's like you explained, it's going to fall on the backs of Arabs and Muslims here, and um, and and in Europe, and it's going to fuel the people that you know have taken over all of our countries from you know like, and I'm talking about Trump. Like it's going to fuel people like Trump, and it's really like the fact that people can't see that is just so alarming. But we have <laughs> but to can't. we have to recognize that the infrastructure is there to do all the stuff that we're concerned about Donald Trump doing. It's all yeah. in, it's all intact. The Barack the, the president uh, Barack Obama his administration has left all of it in place. I'm not just talking about like the flying killer robots and and, <laughs> and assassinating people overseas. I'm talking about the 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 things that are um more mundane in their injustice. The indefinite detention of people having that power for military officials to use on anyone who is is deemed a threat. Like that can be particularly useful in a moment when you believe there are people who have gotten into our borders who are from Syria and who used to be part of these rebel groups. Right. Like it's I mean yeah, it's it, it, you know, God, I Trump is going to have the power to kill Americans abroad without a trial. Trump is going to have a kill list. Trump may even take the step and say, you know what? For the first time, we're going to kill um, one of these guys on U.S. soil. It's going to be a law enforcement uh, operation, quote unquote, law enforcement operation. And we're going to make sure that we only, you know, like kill him in uh, like maybe he's in a bunker or maybe this person's hiding out in a, in a you know a what home. let's say you know what I know let's just use a bunker buster bomb yeah on American soil he's in a bunker right, <laughs> right. exactly like yeah I, I think that that's I mean Trump has the right to do I don't I don't know if Trump has the right to do that but all right Trump so- I mean we'll see what happens but um, beyond that I mean I think that the last thing I'd want to mention I think this will maybe uh, be a good segue into what I'm pretty sure we were going to talk about next um, is a lot of the uh, panicking about Syria you hear from Samantha Power and people in the U.S. government and media. Um, a lot of it also is related to this new anti-Russia hysteria uh, because, you know, Syria is seen as a place where Russia is on one side, the U.S. is on the other. And so um, people are just like trying to sort of tie that into like Russia's doing this in Syria and also, by the way, apparently hacking our democracy. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we are going to have a conversation posted about Russia hacking, especially since Rania's just back. But this is going to be the end of this week's episode uh, um, and because we had the interview uh, with John Washington about the, the critical reports about people who are being disappeared at the border, uh, the missing crisis, uh, the missing persons crisis around border crossers and the brutality of border patrol officers. So um, thank you for listening and um, have a good week. 